Hello and welcome to the Sting and Fly podcast. My name is Declan Mead and I'm the publisher here at the Sting and Fly. On this podcast, we ask a writer to choose some work from the Sting and Fly archive to read and discuss. Today, I'm joined by Nisha Dolan. Nisha was born in Dublin, studied at Trinity College and completed a master's degree in Victorian literature at Oxford. Her writing has been featured in the Dublin Review and the Sting and Fly. Nisha's debut novel, Exciting Times, has been described by Hilary Mantel as droll, shrewd and unafraid. It is published this month by Weidenfeld and Nicholson in the UK and in June by Echo in the US. Nisha has chosen to read Emma Donoghue's Looking for Petronilla, a story that appeared back in issue 11, volume 1 of the magazine in winter 2001. Emma Donoghue is an Irish-Canadian playwright, literary historian, novelist and screenwriter. Her 2010 novel, Room, was an international bestseller and a finalist for the Man Booker Prize. The movie adaptation of the, the book was nominated for four Academy Awards, including Best Picture. Donoghue's 1995 novel, Hood, won the Stonewall Book Award and her novel, Slammerkin, won the Pharaoh Grumley Award for Lesbian Fiction. Her latest novel, Akin, was published last year. Before we start, I just want to say if you like the podcast, please do share it with your friends or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That really helps us out. And now, without further ado, here's Nisha Dolan reading Looking for Petronilla by Emma Donoghue. I've been away too long. The plane took me from London to Dublin in less than an hour. I would have come this way before if I'd known how simple it was. When I first took the boat to England, vomiting up my whole self into the Irish Sea, I swore I'd never go back. But most promises wear out in the end. This plane trip was almost merry, clouds backlit by champagne. I bought it in honour of Petronilla. Since she couldn't be here today, it seemed only fitting to toast her virtues in overpriced bubbly, 10,000 feet above the island she never left. The rented Volvo took me to Kilkenny with surprising speed. They've built craft shops on every corner and knocked down a lot of old houses. Kit those in is still there, though. Its wooden lines stand firm against the swarm of tourists. There's an Alice's restaurant in the cellars. It's a kind of magic, jokes the sign, catching the sunlight. And upstairs is called Nero's. How very suitable. What's your poison, traveller? I stand at the bar and order a glass of the best red they have. I look around, waiting for the centuries to fall away, but my eyes lodge on the shinty little tablecloths and chairs. I'm so used to the 20th century that it is almost impossible to imagine myself back to the 14th. Hard to believe that this round belly building was ever cold and damp, with one fire sighting and the smell of tallow flaring in the nostrils of visitors. I peer at the wall, where a Disney hag pours cups of smoking brew for four little men with uneasy expressions. Perhaps they've noticed that their shoes, toes tied to their knees, are from the wrong country and century. I read through the five-line caption, which is a tribute to the powers of invention, nothing worth losing my temper over. Why should anyone remember anyway, except someone like me, whose business it is? There's been a lot of water under the bridge since 1324. History always becomes a cartoon where it survives at all. Your best hope for a ride towards posterity is the bandwagon of folklore. Oldest house in Kilkenny, this is. I accept the wine glass from the greying woman behind the bar. 
So they say. You know the story? Oh yes. I take a sip. Not dry enough. I wonder what kind of hash this woman could make of the tale, but it hardly needs another telling. It is remarkable only for the gender of the protagonist. When a man kills his wife, he is a tortured rebel, criminel de passion, dusky Othello, or bluff King Hal. When a woman kills her husband, she is never allowed to forget it. I stare at the drawing again. Alice Kittler, four times widowed in two dozen years, has evolved into a long-nailed monster, a Kilkenny Clytemonestra. Researching... My eyes swivel back to the barmaid who is polishing glasses with a Guinness tea towel. Beg your pardon? Doing a radio programme or something. Family history, she adds. Her hand is paused, knuckles yellow against the glass. More or less, I tell her, with a ghost of a smile. Very nice. I glance back at the wall beside me, then at the others, weighted down with old maps and giant replica copper pots. No picture of Petronilla de Meath. I suppose I could ask the barmaid, but I'm not sure if my mouth could bear to form the words. Why is it that almost nobody knows Petronilla's name when she was so much more remarkable than her mistress? No demon dame Alice called up and bound with spells ever served her so faithfully. What interests me is not so much the mistress's evil, which seems after almost seven centuries to amount to no more than a banal footnote in the annals of war and treachery, but the maid's extraordinary ordinariness. How through thick and thin, thinness and thin, masses read backwards and Christian funerals, Petronilla retained her sense of being a good servant, whatever that could mean in a house like this one as if she had heard some fireside tale that ended with a tag. When that your mistress sell here soul to Lucifer and take a wish for to kill her lawful wedded husbands, be ye of good cheer and give her all manner of aid for to brew the poison. I love history myself. I turn on the barmaid who is rubbing at the lipsticked lip of a glass. Why is that? Her blue eyes, behind her glasses, seem surprised by the question. Well, it makes you feel more complete, doesn't it? A pause. Knowing where you're from. Does it? Reminds you that there's more to the whole business than your own little life. She gives me a wholly unmerited smile. I like to think that no one ever really dies, as long as their folks remember them. Perhaps they prefer to. Remember them? die. Oh, oh, I don't think so, says the woman, as if to reassure us both. I ask to be directed to the ladies. This seems the best excuse for poking around. For all the dark wood, most of these walls look new. These smooth beams have never had a sconce stuck in them. I hitch up my tights, careful not to tear them. I take off my heavy ring to wash my hands. My face looks back to me with a hint of defiance. No new lines today. On the wall, a condo vent machine offers me the quality range of luxury lubricated sheath contraceptives. I can tell I won't find what I'm looking for in Kittler's Inn. As I cross the narrow elbow of St. Kiernan Street, I find myself humming a tune, a very old one. I realise that it has been stuck in my head since Dublin. The words slide into each other like water over worn rocks. Voice on anonymous voice, disciplined in melancholy resignation. Quiconque veut d'amour joyeux doit avoir fait d'espérance. 
Such patience the singers had back then, giving every melancholic syllable its own line of music, a full half minute to a phrase, as if they had all the time in the world. Faith and hope are what the seeker after love must have. Faith to keep you longing. Hope to relieve your despair. The town has become a maze of gift shops and boutiques. I can't tell where anything used to be. As I step off a curb, a car roars by, inches from my handbag. Larguelga, says the bumper sticker, as if simple encouragement could set my tongue to talking the language I've long forgotten. What was Petronilla's first name, I wonder? The one she knew herself by when she was a raw serving maid who could only speak two tongues and both of them with a county Meath accent. When her hair still fell loose under her white coif, not yet having tucked away as the mark of womanhood. When she came in a cart to Kilkenny, telling her beads before her mistress renamed her for the saint whose day it was, the Roman virgin who tended Peter. What went through the girl's head those first months, I wonder, as she ran to order? Fetch my Venetian brocade, the raid one, you fool, and strap on my patterns if you'd not have me wade through every puddle in town, and, in a low voice, have you fetched candles of beeswax for the ceremony? She was Dame Alice's loyal bondswoman from the start. She was a dagger thrown back and forward between these ruby-weighted hands. The first Sabbath made her wretch in a corner, but she said nothing, told no one, never broke thrust. The girl had no malice of her own, but her mistress's orders girded her like chainmail, and obedience made her brave. The most inexplicable thing is that at no point in her imprisonment or trial did Petronilla try to run away. Did she keep hoping Dame Alice would return from England to burst the doors with all the force of law or simply a click of her stained fingers? Or did the maid simply keep her garbled faith, offering herself as ransom for her vanquished mistress, waiting on the pleasure of a dark master? Or, more likely, did some portion of her drugged conscience feel her execution to be a proper end to the story? What is clear is that she was not one of the weeping, piteous victims who flock across the pages of history. She embraced her death as a final order. Does that make her mistress's betrayal better or worse? All the records have to say on the matter is that at the hour of her death, Petronilla declared that Dame Alice was the most powerful witch in the world. I feel slightly faint. I'm standing on a street corner with a slightly crazed expression. A small girl leaning against a lamppost watches me. She has a purple birthmark, the shape of a kidney. Lights changed ages ago, missus, she points out. I cross without answering her. I should be looking for the jail, but I can't face it yet. I wander up the hill, past Dunn's stores, a stall selling local fudge, a poster inviting costumed revellers to a Quentin Tarantino night. St Canister seems almost small after the great cathedrals of England. Its walls are grey and serene. Beside it, the round tower pencils the clouds. I look for the grave, but they must have moved it. Inside the church, I finally stumble across the headstone, one of a dozen propped against the walls. With difficulty, I make out the old French letters, framing a fleur-de-lis cross. Here lies Jose de Ketler, they say. Say thou who passest here a prayer. He came to this town in chainmail with a long sword, an old-style legitimate killer. Learned Gaelic, grew long moustaches, finally even rode without a saddle in the native way. A peaceful settler, shaping himself to the island faith of Plastemon, Joe's de Kettler was not to know his name would be immortalised by his iron-willed daughter. Why is it so much worse to execute husbands than infidels, I wonder? 
Most of us are descended from killers one way or another. None of this is telling me anything I didn't already know and my feet are beginning to ache. In the museum, I take my shoes off for a moment to stretch my feet on the smooth wooden floor. What a motley collection we have here. Grisset and candle mould, cypress chest and footstool, a copy of a will specifying what a certain widow would inherit from her husband if she did not remarry or have carnal knowledge of any man willingly. The last bit makes me smile and a deer skull with anthers six feet wide. On a dusty shelf, I find a huge metal tongs for stamping IHS on holy wafers. My heart begins to thump again. Downstairs in the bookshop, I calm myself with a collection of photographs of Irish lakes. The girl assesses me as a browser and turns back to the phone, demanding, in an accent I have not heard in a long time, to know who'd said she fancied that spotty Egypt. I turn the pages, recognising the heads of birds. I move on to the small history shelf, where I learn that the town's most famous witch was, in fact, framed. Alice Kittler, possibly in the spelling of Kettle, a fairly common English surname, I read in one hardback, was a victim of a combination of the worst excesses of 14th century Christo-patriarchy, threatening to men by virtue of her emotional and financial independence, this irrepressible bourgeoise who always kept her maiden name through repeated widowhoods, aroused the hostility of avaricious relatives and a misogynistic Catholic establishment. As in many other witch trials, powerful men, both church and lay, projected their own unconscious fantasies of a sexual-slash-satanic perversion onto the blank canvas of a woman's life. I can't help smiling. Blank canvas, my eye. There's a grain of truth here, of course. Before she ever trafficked with darkness, the citizens of Kilkenny resented the Kitler woman's fine house, bright gowns, every last ruby on her fingers. But that does not make her innocent. The girl on the phone is eyeing me wearily. She is letting her friend speak now, the faraway voice winding down like clockwork. How the 20th century loves to issue general pardons. At this distance, it cannot distinguish the rare cases of serious evil from those of farmers' wives burnt by neighbourly malice. Dame Alice should not be lumped in with the victims. She was the real thing. She could be said to have deserved the punishment she never got. Unlike Petronilla, not mentioned in the historical analysis, Petronilla, who should have been set free when the whole sorry mess was concluded... Why could she not have been shaken out like a wide-eyed cat from a sack to run across country and live an ordinary life? It is too hot in here, all at once, too cosy, with a tub of Connemara marble worry stones going cheap beside the till and remaindered romance stacked high on a table between the symmetrical stairs of Decker and archaeology. I replace the books neatly and leave. Outside it is cooler, at least. The edgy breeze of late afternoon fills the town. I walk along the main shopping street, wondering where the jail could have got to. A hamburger carton impales itself on my heel. I kick it off. My toes feel crushed. My head is beginning to pound. Anything could have been built on the site of Petronella's last months. A hardware shop, a B&B, a public toilet. A jail is by nature anonymous. All it requires is four walls or a hole in the ground. A barred square of light, if you're lucky. I pause outside a pub offering live trad tonight. I stare at the five bowers just above ground level, the darkness between them. All they hide is a cellar of beer barrels, but if I close my eyes, I can almost see her pallid hands caressing the iron. Petronella in the shadows, crouched in her dirty smock, once good linen, a present after her first year of service. 
a face like a drop of honey, looking out of a bedraggled wimple. Unless they shamed her by leaving her head naked, did her pale hair come down at last, escaping coif and cap and veil, falling back into girlhood. I rest my palms against the pub's grey slate, ignoring the glances of passers-by, and try to conjure up the rest of her. Would there be marks of torture, the telltale insignia on wrists and soles? Probably not. There would have been no need, since she seems to have told the whole story freely once her mistress had escaped to safety. Besides, they probably preferred to bring the girl unmarked to the stake, a perfect sacrifice to the fire-breathing dragon. Where would they have done it, I wonder, outside the jail, outside the city walls, or in the busy thoroughfare of the market square? Which supermarket sits on Petronilla's ashes now? Pressing my fingertips so hard against the cement that they turn grey, I ask every question I can think of. Was there anyone there that day who, remembering arms or a kind word or just the turn of her cheek, had enough mercy on her to add wet faggots to the kindling? Was there enough smoke to put her to sleep before flames like the arches of her feet? This is one of the times when I wish I still had the ability to cry. Petronilla is not here. There is nothing left. I do not know what I was hoping for exactly, some sign of presence, some message scratched from me on the prison wall, some word from her walking ghost. I shut my eyes more tightly, but all I can hear from is an inane pop song leaking from a taxi window. Hold on, the singing bags. Every word I say is true. Hold on, I'll be coming back for you. I let go of the wall. The pads of my fingers are scored and pockmarked. As I stare at them, they plump into their usual shape. The daily miracle, the return to the same healthy flesh. How long must it go on? I stride back to my car through a crocodile of French school children. In the car park, I have some difficulty remembering what colour I rented. Automatically, I fasten my seatbelt. I've never tried to kill myself. I'm afraid to discover that it would not work. I struggle with my shoes and lean my head back on the padded rest. What on earth am I doing here? My ring is cutting into my finger. I pull it off and stare at it. Rubies to stave off disease. This is my last one. Once in Birmingham, someone tried to mug me, and I cracked his nose with this ring. Time has not absolved me of anything. The clothes have been transformed. The name is different. I change it every fifty years or so, but the face in the rearview mirror is the same and in almost seven centuries of exile, I have not managed to forget Petronilla. It is almost funny, is it not? One would think that a woman who, in her esoteric researches, had stumbled across the secret of immortality, would feel free. Exhausted by life's repetitions, yes. Starred for fresh food, tormented by the bargain she made, but in some sense, free to wander, at least, to move, to leave behind the quarrels of mortals. I never expected to be so haunted by one face that I'd have to make my way back to Kilkenny. More than any husband or lover or child, more than anyone I've hurt since I went into exile, more than anyone I left without warning, when they wondered why I was not ageing, or killed with my bare hands, when they deserved it. Petronilla's is the only death I still regret. Leaving her behind was the worst thing I've ever done. I did no harm to my first husband, the richest money lender in town. I bore him a son and I fed him tidbits on his deathbed. As for my second, in my grandmother's time, I could have followed the old ways and left him after a year and a day, but under common law, I was his for life to stamp his mark on. I bent under his weight like a reed, and in the pool of humiliation, I brushed against my power. 
He was sick already. The beatings were getting feebler, but the poison sped him on. My third... Yes, I remember. I dispatched him in a night after I caught him in the linen cupboard ripping the skirt off Petronilla. The night before his funeral, I dropped his heart in the river Nor. As for my fourth, John the Poor, he was a loving man who shut his ears to the rumours circulating about me. But by then, you must understand, I had signed with my own blood and the sacrifice was called for. His hair came out in handfuls when I brushed it at night. His nails began to bend backwards. Petronilla never claimed to understand the rituals, but she knew that whatever Dame Alice said had to happen. When John, made suspicious at last by the gossip of my dead husband's disinherited children, talked to Bishop Ledred, it was my faithful maid, my flawless echo, who repeated to me every word they had said. When my husband wrenched the key from my belt and burst into my room, finding and forcing open the padlocked boxes, I kept one curious eye on Petronilla. She wept, because the story was almost over, but she showed no shame. I was charged, along with eleven accomplices, most of whom barely knew me to see. The seven charges told of dogs torn limb from limb and scattered at crossroads, fornication with Ethiopian hobgoblins and a dead baby's flesh boiled in a robber's skull. The grease I used to keep my face soft was listed as a sorceress ointment for the staff on which I flew across Kilkenny town by night. Bishop Ledred was widely read and had a vivid imagination. He was not to know that power is composed of simple elements once you have stumbled across it. Ledred did not do it for the money his spiritual court could hope to confiscate. Like myself, he was motivated by wrath and glory, and so, when I had indicted him for defamation and sailed to England with all my jewels, when my son William had agreed to pay for the re-roofing of St. Canis' as a penance, and when the other accused accomplices had melted into the night, Then the bishop focused his gaze on Petronilla. She was all he had left. It was not that I could not have brought her with me, torn her out of prison somehow. I simply never thought to. That is my crime, that in the urgency of my flight, full of the sense of my own devilish importance, I did not even condemn my maid deliberately, but carelessly, as I might have said, pick up that sarsenic gown. I've had plenty of time to think of her since. In almost seven centuries of wandering, I can make an informed comparison. I have met no one who loved so well or was so betrayed. She was not a natural killer. She ground poisons together out of mute loyalty. And what purer motive is there than that? It is so long since I have killed, I have almost forgotten how. It is not worth risking nowadays. They lock you up. Take down what you say and never put an end to it. Oh, Petronilla, how I envy your death. Not the manner of it, the pain and squalor, but its definition. How it took you by the hand and led you away before your bursting youth could dwindle. Unless I am casting a web of glamour over the story to lessen my guilt. But that is not how it works. My envy and my guilt pin each other down. Petronilla's, short and powerless is a life I did not lead and cannot lead, no matter how long I drag on and will never fully understand. Petronilla's exultant face I cannot leave behind me. She follows, just out of view, and all the rippling voices are hers. Quiconque veut d'amour joyeux doit avoir fait d'espérance. 
having had faith and hope enough to last for a short lifetime, did it come down to love in the end? Was that what she feasted on among the rats in Kilkenny Jail? How could I be loved by such as her? For all my sheer elastic skin, I am a hollow woman. My ribs are an empty cauldron now. My breath couldn't put out a candle. I start the car. My one faith is that I will find some trace of Petronilla. My one hope is that she will teach me how to die. My one love now, the only one whose face I can remember. There, around some corner, she burns. She burns. Thank you, Nisha. <laughs> tell, <laughs> Thank me you. That, tell me why you chose to read that story from Edward Donahue today. Part of it was just a gut reaction that I love this sort of thing. Ever since my early teens, I've had this fascination with dark women in history that we don't know a huge amount about and that we have a tendency to project on one way or another. So... I, I think especially Victorian ones. So I loved Mary Ann Cotton, the woman who killed loads of her children and husbands. I loved Typhoid Mary yeah. and the kind of alternative reading of her as this Irish immigrant making good as best she can, who was attacked by the medical establishment for reasons she didn't understand. So that really draws me to a lot of what Emma Donoghue does of discovering these historical figures and acting out that projection and I think you really see that at work in this story with the narrator herself and then the views around her that all seem partial one way or another and I just think it's so ballsy to end with a very particularised narrator but still not impose on us any way of viewing Petronilla just leave that there in chaos what do we do when any view of her is going to be slanted yeah I mean I think there's because as you read it and it's there obviously in the writing but as you read it there's a great sense of glee about it you know like it's just kind of wait you know like I'm, I'm going for this kind of sense of uh, you know I'm I'm telling the story that you know has been forgotten but I'm also kind of relishing the kind of the the goriness of it or the you know the campness in a way as well, as well maybe yeah. You know, you know. yeah yeah and I, I think that's another one of my motivations for choosing this because it reminded me of something that Emma Dunne was saying about Room about how for her and many other LGBT readers an LGBT story doesn't just mean it has LGBT characters or deals with explicit LGBT issues it yeah. can be things like In Room that narrative of establishing a family connection on your own terms and then going to the outside world and having people respond to it with horror and a degree of prurience yeah. and an assumption that if you would be like them, you could. And I, I mean, there's definitely a queer reading of the narrator's fascination with Petronilla, but moreover, that level yeah. of kind of gore and of withholding 
moralism and value judgments and just enjoying the texture of things. I think that can be quite a queer method of engaging with things, even on the lib level that we sometimes read Disney villains as queer. Um, yeah. uh, just sort of having a marked aesthetic without necessarily caring whether you sympathise with it. Sure. And can I just ask, like, how important would a writer like Emma Donoghue be for you, you know, in terms of when you discovered her or reading her early on? Or, I mean, how was that in terms oh, of... Oh, yeah, hugely important. I think the first book of hers that I read was Slammerkin. So um, a very little explicit queer stuff in there. Yeah. But again, just that permission that writing like that gives yeah. you. And, you know, I devoured the book without knowing anything about it. And then... I read up on her and her approaches and having someone affirm that it's okay to look for yourself in history and in other forms of cultural production, mm. I think was vital because, you know, this was well before the marriage referendum sure. and just that permission to see yourself even when it wasn't intended yeah. because it was really hard to find books where I was explicitly invited to see myself and then obviously actually seeing myself and other things that she'd written as yeah, well, which is yeah. hugely influential. Yeah, and I think we can't underestimate the importance of that, you know, whatever the, whatever the, whatever it is, whether it's, you know, about being gay or being a person of colour or, you know. Yeah, um, and, yeah or you know, like or, I'm autistic for, and that yeah. was another... Yeah. Uh, it, it's not even, I mean, explicit representation is also important, yeah. but having someone affirm that if you see a nondescript figure, it's as likely to be you as it is to be someone from the corresponding privileged identity. Sure. It, it just gives you a real sense of ownership over culture in general, I think. Yeah, great. And uh, so we're going to, let's talk a little bit about the novel, Exciting Times, which is just out. And... Um, T tell me a bit about the writing of it and and how it all came about. You know, in terms of how well, how I suppose let's start with reading and writing. Then, how did you know how do those th things fit into your life? Sure. You know? So, in terms of reading, it's just been an omnipresent thing. I can't think of a time when I didn't love books, yeah. but I never saw it as tied to any career aspirations or my broader self-image. It was just a thing I liked doing. Yeah. Um, in terms of writing, it actually wasn't that much of an interest until the end of my college years, I'd say, when right. I, on a whim, really, I took a short creative writing module with the novelist Deirdre Madden. Okay. And I really enjoyed that and came yeah. out of it thinking, why not attempt a novel now? Yeah. So I think in a way, I'm lucky that I wasn't more mired in any kind of community because, <laughs> you know, it's full of people telling you not to do that. And yeah. I... I had that kind of beginner's confidence of yeah. going, well, this a novel is, is a certain I'm, number of words. Yes. If I write for long enough, I will have the certain number of words. If I can't shape it into anything anyone else will enjoy, then so be it. But let's yeah. give it a go. So I was then quite mechanical in how I attempted it. I just made so, things up and then made more things up in order to um, explain the first things. And So does, it sounds there that you wrote out a first draft of a novel? Yeah. In, yeah. <laughs> yeah, just <laughs> and there it was. And <laughs> what happened then? Or um... so I'm quite lucky in that my life decided how I was going to write. I was too busy to constantly work on it, so accidentally I had a lot of space between drafts. Right, and I tried as best I could to do what intuitively made sense, and which I've since found out is also the literal advice that a lot of people give of fixing fixing the structural issues before getting too nitty gritty with the language. So. Sure. 
I just reread it, thought, where is it boring? What can I cut? Where do I need more explanation? Where does it not make sense that something follows from something else? Yeah. If I change this, what will change as a result? So that structural stuff first, and then was, leave it for a bit. Were you doing all of this kind of on your own, all this work on your own? And yeah, largely. Pretty much, yeah, just and for the pure kind of satisfaction of, was it like a something you were doing on the sidelines of things? or was Yeah, it, I like making things. I yes, think it's yeah. quite rewarding to make something that, internally makes yeah. sense on its own terms and yeah. that you don't need external things to sure. I mean obviously it's composed of language so it's always given meaning by external things but yeah. yeah just making it work in my view of it before anyone else saw it yeah because I, I mean you know at what point did you start thinking oh how will other people read this and how will they read it and how do I how do I make sure they read it or um I th- I think I still haven't hit that point, really. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you, you know, so you I, just enjoyed the telling. You know, you had studied all uh, Victorian literature. I mean, was that hugely kind of helpful or not? Yeah, <laughs> um, I think it was probably influential in the importance of reception to me because you're very aware that the best-selling authors of the day are often out of print now mm. and many of the marginalised ones have since come to have a much greater cultural hold so I think that probably makes you more aware that there's no point writing for other people it has right. to be something that you enjoy while you're doing it and so t- tell us a little bit then about Exciting Times the story and what was it about the, that kind of you know the story and the characters that you know you want, you were trying to explore that you know just for this for your own sake and in, in the writing of it what were you what was motivating you in that process sure um i think i tend to be quite unintellectual in how i write i just follow my curiosities so i might start with quite a small anecdotal thing when i'm making up a character so a lot of julian came from his name and i'm right. sure if i'd given him a different name he would have turned out a very different person yeah. and then either similarly actually and then obviously once they start interacting with each other you start wondering how that's going to pan out and i i'm so not ava sure how much is the, the narrator so yeah. in terms of ava i mean where would you see see her coming from initially or you know her voice which obviously fuels the whole book i mean so is it do, can you can i ask is that close to your own voice or how do you how do you view it yourself well i suppose the concept of voice has a few things bound yeah. up in it doesn't it it right. has your choice of subject matter then sure. it has your choice of register and how you structure it and yeah. all that so I'm not sure how much of that stems from her as a character and how much is how I would have written a novel from anyone's perspective. I think probably the feature about her narrative style that struck me the most was its relative blankness. And then I became curious about what internal emotional state would lead someone to be so unforthcoming. Mm -hmm. So in a way the process of figuring out how she should narrate the book was also a character exercise. Right. Would you see her as being a very passive character or how do you think of her now? I think analytically she's not passive. Right. She no. makes sense <laughs> she, of the things around her. Yeah, but she, does she come to the wrong conclusion sometimes perhaps, you know? Yeah, but passivity does. is linked partly to what one does, but yeah. then 
also to the choices available to one. So sure. I don't know how you could make her more active in a lot okay. of what she engages yeah, yeah, in because yeah. she's in quite an economically and socially satisfied sure. position anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, with the novel comment, obviously there's a lot of distraction for, for, for you now in terms of um, things that are happening around the writing and the publishing of the book and how, how, how are you navigating that process at the moment? With a degree of compartmentalization, I think it's really important not to establish an image of myself that depends on external praise or even a particular mode of external response because then if that goes away what do I have like so I I just see it as something that's happening to a figure who bears my name and just yes, get on yeah, with my yeah. own stuff yeah and you are working away on the next book and but you don't want to say too much about it but um can you just tell me a little bit about the process of, of you know starting out on a new book and and how how it is going for you and how how you kind of manage to find time for it and yeah so I'm quite lucky in that I'm very unromantic about writing, which means that I don't have any nice stories to give when I'm asked about it by journalists, but it does mean I can just sit down and do it when I plan to. So just whenever there's time, um, in terms of the process, I wrote um, the first draft of my second novel in the third person, but I've since decided that I want it in the first. So I'm going back and rewriting it in the first person and I'll see what interesting changes emerge along the way from that. Yeah. And in terms of, you know, just, the motivation and and keeping going, um, you know, are there tricks you've learned from in from the first novel that you're carrying through into the second one? Or yeah, I think probably the biggest has been in terms of pacing because I have a very bad habit of describing general tendencies the characters have in t instead of grounding it in particular moments. And it's just not as fun to read that way. You want that sense of momentum that things are specifically happening one by one by one. So I'm getting better and not doing that, I think. Great. Um, so thanks so much for your time today, um, you. Nisha. And um, yeah, thanks for coming into the Sting and Fly podcast. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs>